Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network Podcast. I am Lee Pierce, your hostess with the mostest, they, she pronouns, assistant professor of rhetoric. Very excited to welcome a colleague, a friend, uh, someone that I came out of grad school with that's always been kind of an inspiration, so this is very exciting for me. And that is Megan McFarlane, who has just published a book, I'm talking hot off the presses, titled Militarized Maternity, Experiencing Pregnancy in the U.S. Armed Forces. So this is a book um, primarily interested in the rights of pregnant workers, as well as the lack of paid maternity leave, looking at how they've increasingly become topics of a major policy debate in the U.S. And yet, as McFarlane points out, few discussions have focused on the U.S. military, where many of the latest policy changes focus on these very issues. Despite the armed forces' increase to maternity-related benefits, service women continue to be stigmatized for being pregnant and taking advantage of maternity policies. So in an effort to understand this disconnect, Dr. McFarlane analyzes military documents and conducts interviews with enlisted service women and female officers. She finds a policy culture disparity within the military that pregnant service women often themselves co-construct, making the policy changes significantly less effective. And Dr. McFarlane ends the book by offering suggestions for how these policy changes can have more impact and how they could potentially serve as an example for the broader societal debate. So we have a triple threat today. We've got rhetoric methodology, we got interview methodology, we got policy suggestions. So a real treat to have Dr. McFarlane here. Megan, um, thanks so much for joining us. Can you go ahead and tell everybody about this awesome book, the research that must've gone into this and just um, just what you're, what you're thrilled about with this new discoveries that you've made? Yes, thank you, Lee. I'm super excited to talk to you today about this, um, especially because I'm just really excited about this book and that this research is finally out. As many people who do research know, it can take a long time for research to finally see the light of day. And to have been able to publish this book in April of 2021 and have reviewers that were willing to review the final drafts during a pandemic was just makes it even extra special to me because it kind of touches on the fact that I'm guessing the reviewers and the people that were working at UC Press were also dealing with some interesting work-life balance stuff while we were in a pandemic. Um, But I am, so I'm super excited about the research. A little background on me, I have, all of my degrees are in communication. So I got my undergraduate degree from Vanguard University in communication studies, minor in business. Then I went to Cal State Fullerton and I got my master's degree in communication studies. And then I went to the University of Utah and got my PhD in communication. And so this journey really started, I would say, when I was an undergrad and I took a course called Media Criticism that with Dr. Tom Carmody that got me interested in rhetoric. It got me interested in feminist rhetorical studies And I got really excited and thought, you know, I want to do this type of research. Then when I was in grad school with getting my PhD in the summer of 2012, I don't know if if you or the listeners remember this picture. It's actually in the book, in in the introduction. It's on, let me see here, page two. There was an image of two service women who were breastfeeding in uniform, in combat uniforms that went viral on social media. And these, the women were breastfeeding, but one woman in particular was breastfeeding twins. And so the amount of cleavage that you could see was significant compared to the other woman who was able to kind of hide her breasts because she was only breastfeeding one baby. And so 
the image was part of um, World Breastfeeding Awareness Week, and it was from mom to mom support group to you know support breastfeeding and and working mothers and so on. And so this it went viral though because I like people were getting really angry about it. And so mm. some people said it was as offensive as defecating on a uniform. It was you know really um, a bad thing for these women in uniform to be doing. And it, it got really controversial. And so when I saw that image, I had been studying the military a little bit, the US military, but I, and I was also, like I said, interested in, in feminist issues or in women's studies, but I hadn't found a way to pair those two together. And so when I saw this image and I saw the comments people were making about it, I was like, oh my goodness, I don't, we don't know anything about what it is to be a woman in the military on active duty or just, you know, serving and to be pregnant and to have children and what that experience is like. And so I became interested in it. I I did publish um, one article on it in International Feminist Journal of Politics, where I just kind of asked, like, why was this so offensive? What was going on here? And so I I looked at the functional versus the sexual nature of breasts, especially in U.S. society, and kind of compared those. And so that was an interesting kind of jumping point. But then I realized as as a rhetorical scholar, I was looking at the text, I was looking at the picture, I was analyzing the picture, I was reading the comments, but I wasn't hearing from the service women themselves. And I thought, if I really want to do justice to my research on service women, I probably need to actually talk to them. I need to, and, and as a, a rhetorical scholar, I hadn't ever done interviews. And so I took a summer course that I took a course that summer where I learned how to do interviews. And I went to, you know, one of my neighbors who I knew had had a baby while she was on active duty. And I talked to her and I put out some, she put some stuff on Facebook and I kind of sent out some messages to various people. And so I was able to do a ton of interviews, not a ton of interviews, but many interviews. And I was like learning a lot more about military culture. And I think what was important about it in, in conducting the interviews and not just doing, let's say, um, not just doing the rhetorical analysis. And I talk about this in my book. It was kind of like these puzzle pieces where I, I was looking at the puzzle and I you know, often, you know, talk about doing critical rhetorical studies where I'm looking at fragments and, and creating that larger text out of the fragments. So I had newspaper articles, I had military publications, I had the image of the service women breastfeeding in uniform, I had the comments people were making about it. But the voice that we still weren't hearing was the voice of the service women themselves. And I didn't want to contribute to the continual silencing or ignoring of those voices as well. And so I started interviewing service women and I started learning a lot more about the military because I don't, I don't come from, I get asked this a lot. Are you military? Do you have a military you know, partner or spouse? Do you have military in your family? And I don't, I just was interested in this and how they came together. So I, it was a big learning curve for me. Um, terminology, how, you know, deployment works, how different branches work, how their policies work, that all branches have different policies when it comes to you know, many things, but especially, you know, maternity and um, maternity leave and breastfeeding policies. And so, so it was a big learning curve. And my initial interviews, I interviewed about, I think it was 13 enlisted service women. And so no officers. So all of these women either, um, you know, they enlisted, they didn't come from like an academy, they didn't come with their, you know, master's degree or whatever, they, they enlisted. And so I presented that research at, it became a chapter in my dissertation. So in my dissertation, I looked at service women's embodied experiences, and I had a chapter on their sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. And I used the invisible war as kind of the basis to drive that, the film that came out in, I think, 2011. Then I had a chapter on maternity experiences where I looked at pregnancy experiences and I utilized the interviews from the enlisted service women that I interviewed. And then I had a chapter on the military or on abortion policies. And I looked at the military abortion amendment that I think came out in 2013. And that allowed for abortions in cases of 
rape, incest, and when the woman's life is in danger, which expanded what it was previously, which was just if the woman's life was in danger. And so I had this dissertation and I pulled out the chapter on pregnancy because I thought that would be a really interesting article. Um, and I presented this um, at a, at our national conference for National Communication Association convention. And because of the research I had done, I was actually presenting at the organizational communication division. And I was a rhetorical scholar, but I had been trained in quali- these qualitative research met- or interview methods by a an org comm scholar. And so I was presenting at the org comm division's top paper award. And I was, you know, very excited. I'm like, wow, I got a top paper. I'm on the top paper panel. This is great. There's a, there was a decent audience and I finish. And then a woman stands up at the end who would become Elizabeth in the book. And she says, this is great. And I appreciate the work you're doing, but I'm an officer who just recently retired and nothing, or my experience is very different than what you talked about because you've only talked about the enlisted service women perspective. And so for me, that was, I guess, another example of how little I knew, you know, about the military, how I was still learning. So I had interviewed all these enlisted service women and I had come up with themes and there were, you know, I had reached the point where there were consistent themes. I'd gotten saturation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I felt very confident about what I had found, but I was missing yet another piece of the puzzle, which was officers' voices. And so right when I think the project's done, she says, I will be your first interview and I will connect you with others. And so I started a second phase of interviews with officers and it was great. And Elizabeth, this is her pseudonym, turns out to be super well connected and people mm. adore her and she's great. And she, I, I found this like wonderful network of female officers who were all excited to tell me about their experiences and also just spoke very highly of Elizabeth. And so I conducted a second round of interviews. And throughout that process, it became increasingly apparent to me that my dissertation was not going to become a book in the way that I thought. I wasn't going to have a chapter on sexual assault, a chapter on um, pregnancy, and a chapter on abortion policies. And there are a few reasons for that. One was I thought the different methods used in each chapter are kind of weird to put in a book. People might be like, well, why, why are you not doing interviews for all of them? You know, whatever. So I thought that's kind of an inconsistency that I wasn't excited about. The second thing though, is that if, as I interviewed these women, Michelle said it, I think she was like the second or third person I interviewed. She said that, sorry, again, I'm using pseudonyms for all of these and that they're listed in the book, but Michelle said, I don't look at pregnancy as just a like one, you know, it just happens once. Like I look at it on a continuum in terms of I had to plan my pregnancy, I was pregnant, and then I had kids. And so she said it's a continuum and it doesn't stop. Like it's still happening. And so to try and isolate pregnancy and only talk about pregnancy is really hard for me. And that was when for me the light bulb went off because I thought, oh my goodness that's the book. The book is talking about the whole experience, not just the pregnancy experience, but the fact that you have to plan your pregnancy, you are pregnant, then you have dependents, you know, children that are in your life if you choose to keep them. And, and, you know, if you choose to have the baby and keep the baby. And so I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is so much bigger. And this speaks to something that as an academic, I saw parallels to academics. I've read articles or have been special issues on the work-life balance and being pregnant in, you know, the academy and university. And I've borrowed from, or I drew from Smithson and Stokoe's work from 2006 on what it's like to be a woman who's pregnant in, um, like masculine type jobs, like financial firms and law firms. And so I started seeing these parallels and realizing that the type of, yes, it was a unique atmosphere in the military, but it also had a lot of parallels. And so, so that was kind of, I guess, a really, sorry, long way to, to get at how this book kind of came to be. It was this long process. And then the cool thing for me is that in the process, I went from being strictly 
looking at it from a rhetorical perspective to drawing from organizational communication literature and really diving into that. And then also getting into some health and um, science and you know medicine kind of literature. And so I remember when one of my reviewers said, uh, for the book said, I could see myself teaching this for um, the rhetoric of science or medicine class. And then another one said, this is definitely along the lines of health communication. I thought, oh my goodness, how did I get there? Like I just, it was just kind of where the mm. led. And it's been really exciting and it's gotten me really interested in, in the health, like looking at the health comm perspective for women's reproductive health and women's reproductive rights, um, with a pers- with a, an emphasis on, you know, maternity. So that's kind of, I guess, a long way of saying how we got there, but that's how the book got started and how it evolved in the many years that it took to, to come to fruition. And I should also say, this might be an interesting note is when I was starting this process, I started interviewing service women when I had a, she was a five month old daughter. And so I was kind of in the middle of it as well, which I think, you know, a lot of times we say that research is me search. And so I think I was in the middle of it and I was in the academy and I was trying to, to figure out as a grad student, when do I, when do I plan to, you know, try and plan to have my child? When do I tell people that I'm pregnant uh, and not risk maybe something in my academic career? You know, will, will my advisors and my committee still want to work with me if they find out I'm pregnant? Will I seem like I'm less committed to my research and my studies? And so I was kind of in the middle of that. And so I was seeing a lot of parallels there too. And I should say, I, I experienced nothing but support when I was, <laughs> when I was going through it. But, but it, these are the things that I think a lot of women think about who are trying to have both a career and children. And also thinking about the fact that there's some articles on this that I remember reading. Um, and now, of course, I'm trying to remember who wrote them. It was a special issue of, was it Western? communication studies, but it was uh, about basically how the the academy has set up our jobs also to be, um, or they originally kind of were like the breadwinner works at the university and does research and they have support at home. Well, what happens if you're a woman who's working at the university as a professor, your partner is also working. So maybe you are, maybe you aren't the breadwinner, but you still want this job how do you work in a job like that that might not be set up for, you know, mothers um, with the timing? Um, and so there are a lot of similarities in, I've heard a lot of academics told, you know, try and plan your babies for May through August. Um, tr- you know, try and wait till after you have tenure. So there's a lot of kind of planning that goes into it that we're told. And in the military, there's a lot of that too. Make sure you plan your pregnancy for when it's convenient for the military. And so I was seeing a lot of these parallels. And then of course, the the, the question or the, the thing that comes up is what happens when you can't plan a pregnancy and or your body doesn't cooperate with your birth control plans, right? So, so there's a lot of things, you know, not, we like to think that everything is easy and can be planned according to our plans. But a big thing that came out in the interviews is that, you know, our bodies aren't machines that can be controlled all the time. And so kind of navigating that. Yeah. So that's kind of, I guess, a general background. Do you have, what, what else would you like me to talk about? <laughs> sure. No, I got, I got thoughts. I got thoughts. I'd love for you to expand on. So yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I think what's cool overall about this mixed methodology, which is awesome. I mean, you know, I think probably more of us should be doing this. <laughs> like, oh, you want to make broad sweeping assumptions about a group of people? Maybe we should let the group of people let us know what they think. Um, is is that there's a real tension that these women are obviously very aware of. I mean, I, I do think, uh, th- I mean, I guess this depends on your, but you know, when we talk about like rhetorical discourse around the military, we tend to be pretty hard on it. Yes. And and, and you do in some ways say, well, yeah, there's there's a definite way in which the 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 like, the machine mentality of the military gets grafted onto pregnancy as if pregnancy can work that way. Yes. Um, these women are very aware of that. But one of the things that's cool about reading about all these characters, um, I guess uh, they're not characters, but they're, they're research subjects, yep. is you you mention um, the multiple subjectivity issue. And so you say this a couple of times, especially toward the end of the chapters when you're commenting on policy. 
But um, I think the best, one of the best places you said it was in this macho maternity chapter that I really liked. And so you say, quote, service women are not one dimensional beings. Their multiple subjectivities include acting as service members, mothers, friends, wives, superiors, subordinates, and the list goes on. And it's not that men don't have multiple subjectivities. Um, it's just, you know, that's a different issue. Uh, so the multiple subjectivities mean that service women experience, you say, contradictory ways of thinking about equality and discrimination. And it is not realistic or wise to assume that all service women think or believe the same way, even if they experienced similar situations like pregnancy. And it really comes through in the book. And so just on that subject, um, two things come up that I'm wondering if you want to talk about. One is, where did you notice I mean, I have some thoughts like about the, like the uniform and the pregnancy uniform in particular, I thought was interesting, but is there a place where you were like, man, I did not see this coming or Mm -hmm. they think about this a lot different than I would have assumed they thought about it if I'd only studied, you know, newspaper or military documents or whatever. And then two, you Mm -hmm. talk about how important, how the rates of unplanned pregnancy are actually a lot higher. So you were talking about this whole, what if your pregnancy doesn't go according to plan, but on top of that, it actually is more likely to not go to plan than any other type of pregnancy <laughs> anywhere else. So how does that play a role in in this like idea of you can't plan necessarily for a pregnancy the way that the military would want you to? Oh, these are good questions. So yeah, I think, uh, so the first question, what surprised me or what, if I hadn't talked to service women, might I not have, would I likely not have known? I think that goes back to kind of the tension you were talking about with so in rhetorical studies and myself included, you know, before this, it's really easy, I think, especially in critical rhetoric and, and we're, we're, we're scholars who are critical scholars. We're, we're, we're trained to kind of find like, what's not working? Why is, you know, what's, what's wrong with this, I guess. And, and kind of point it out so that we're not all just going along with the status quo or, um, you know, whatever. So I think the hard part is, or the interesting thing for me is the service women I interviewed were both simultaneously critical and grateful for the military. Mm -hmm. And I think that was something that I actually really had to work on with the reviewers because I, I, one of the reviewers had said, um, I, you know, McFarland says she's using a critical feminist perspective and, and that's a whole nother thing, right? Like, what do I call what I'm doing when I'm combining methods <laughs> and like, ah, and so, um, I got pushed back on that. So I, I appreciate that you, you think it's valuable because I, I did get pushed back. Like, is she doing interviews or is she doing rhetorical analysis and how is it? And so I had to really, really work through how to explain why and how I did my methods. And so that was a, I, I'm really proud of that part of the book. But then, um, the other thing is, is the reviewer was like, if you're saying you have a critical feminist perspective, but you are unwilling to denounce the military. I just don't see how that can be possible. I don't, I just, that, that just seems like incongruent. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, I remember I went to my advisor. I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know how to explain this. And then, you know, he basically was like, go, go look at the interviews again and look at what's going on there. And that's when I thought, oh, you know what? Like I'm doing, I'm my whole goal here, or one of my major goals is to help us better understand the service women's experiences and to give a voice to people that we don't often hear from and or rarely hear from if ever. And so I thought, okay, what are they saying? And they were doing what I was doing, which was basically saying, Hey, this is a problem. You know, there's, they're telling me I can only have kids uh, in these certain times, but they're not telling the men the same thing because men can continue to work if they're, you know, wife, it has to be wife. Um, if you want to be able to take leave in the military, you have to be married to the person. Um, if their wife is pregnant and has a baby, it doesn't impact their work really at all. They can get up to 21 days, depending on branch, uh, time off. And that is a whole nother thing we can talk about too, or that I mentioned in the book that I, that is beyond the scope of the book, but the idea that uh, many men don't take the full paternity leave because of how that can also look or make them feel like they might look. But the idea they can, they get time off, but ultimately they aren't, they don't have to leave. They don't have to get, you know, put somewhere else because they can no longer stand on their feet for 40 hours a week or whatever. And so there, there is the logistical challenge. And there was one service woman, um, May, who was like, here's the deal. Like it's just reality. And so we can't be mad about it. You know? So at the same time, they're saying, I'm really frustrated. They're also saying it's the reality 
you know, we knew when we signed up that we were women and our bodies were different and we might have this happen. And then they're also saying, uh, May also says something where she says, I'm really grateful. I wouldn't have wanted to be pregnant in any other organization. And because I was like, and, and Elizabeth says this too, basically they have mandated, you know, this is the amount of leave you get. This is the um, accommodations you get. This is X, Y, and Z. So it's all laid out. And it's all in this, in the instructions, if you're in the Navy and it's in other places and other branches, but you basically, you know, go to your commanding officer and say, Hey, here's, here's what it says. And I get this time and, and they can't say no. And so mm-hmm. while they um, are frustrated with maybe having to, I call it hyper plan. So this idea that you have to plan your pregnancy for a very specific time in your career or in your life they're, they get frustrated with the hyper planning at the same time. They're very grateful for the fact that they, they continue to get full pay during maternity leave, which is pretty much unheard of in most of the United States. Um, They continue to accrue vacation while on maternity leave. And uh, they now all branches get 12 weeks of maternity leave, which is way more. So 12 weeks of paid maternity leave, many places in the United States, you get, you might get, um, a few weeks of maternity leave, but you're using short-term or um, disability. And then you can use the Family Medical Leave Act, FMLA, to get maybe another 12 weeks, but that is completely unpaid. And all it does is, not all it does, I shouldn't say that, but and it guarantees your job back. So you do get to get your job back, but you're not getting paid. If you're mm. a woman in the military, you're getting your full salary plus continuing to earn vacation while getting 12 weeks off. So they were very much walking this line, this tension that I think as scholars, we're not quite always used to doing. We like to, um, as much as we know there's like gray areas, we do like to make, um, and I think it, it makes research easier to say, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And to walk, to have this tension was really surprising to me because I wasn't able to say, um, it's this or this, it was both and. It's both a really difficult place to have children and one of the best places to have children. <laughs> so that was that was probably the most surprising thing for me and something that I really pushed back on with the reviewer. And it was I was really glad I did because I think it's a really valuable insight. And I think it's really important. I mean, especially in today's just world with a lot of people wanting to make an either or statement and to say, no, we, we can have these, this both. end. you know, we talk, talk about it in, um, dialectical intercultural theory, you know, in, in intercultural communication about the, um, idea that these tensions are both present. And so I, I really liked that a lot. And, um, so yeah, so that was it. And then the, what an interesting thing too, is the, you mentioned the pregnancy uniforms. Those were so fun to hear about because the service women just, most of them hated them. They just called. Yeah. Them. And for the listener, you got to get the book and look at it. Cause you have some photos of like the, the way they've changed over time and they never get better. They're no. totally awful all no. the way up until. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm so grateful to be able to have those pictures. I, it's so funny. I was like this book, I, cause I talk about them. Like I'm talking about them now and the service women say they, they're like a tent. They're just like a big triangle. Mm-hmm. You kind of have it in your head and you're like, okay. But I, I was able to, um, I think it was Elizabeth again. I said, where can I get a picture? Cause I don't know if I'll get permission to use these photos. And so I, if I can get permission from a service woman who has a picture of her. So I was really grateful because I was able to get, I actually got, I think it was kind of, it almost felt like, almost felt like, you know, like the end of a movie when like the music plays and like the good things are happening and you're finally having this breakthrough. I got like 13 emails from service women with like their maternity pictures. And I was like, this is a whole nother project with like these maternity u- uniform pictures, but they're sending them because you know, they, it's, there's, you know, they're serving our, our country in uniform and they're putting their lives on the line and they have these images and they're proud of these pictures. And they also are like, I also am wearing a tent. And so I was able to use it. Um, and it was really exciting so that you can actually see what they look like, but they're, they're pretty, they're pretty, um, unflattering. And a lot of the women would say, you know, they try and hide their pregnancy as long as they could in their regular uniforms before switching over to the pregnancy uniform, because it's just, it makes them look so much bigger than they are. And, you know, if they wore civilian pregnancy clothes or maternity clothes, people would say, oh, you look like a regular pregnant woman. Um, You look so Mm. huge in the uniform. And so, you know, these women, the thing about it, going back to that tension is they, they want both. They want to be Mm -hmm. mothers, 
and they also want to be military members. And so they're balancing these identities. And so this maternity uniform, while it's fantastic that they have one, um, because the alternative isn't good either. And I'll talk about that in a second. Um, it also made them feel like they were suddenly being pointed out as like different. And, you know, your goal in the military is to be uniform and to be, to not stand out and to, you don't want people to think that you can't, you know, do your job or do what you're asked to do. And so all of a sudden they look big and pregnant and maybe people are like, Oh, can I open the door for you? Can I help you carry that? And they, they didn't want to be treated differently. And I think that's the big thing is that they, these uniforms made them feel like they stood out or should be treated differently. And they didn't like that. Um, with that said, at the same time, these uniforms, they didn't exist for, you know, at the initially when women were allowed to finally, um, join the military to be, you know, to voluntarily join the military when they stopped in, um, what's the word I'm looking for enlistment, but conscription. Um, so, Mm -hmm. so they were able to join and then they would initially, they were, um, kicked out of the military or they got let go. They couldn't stay in the military if they were pregnant. Then they said, okay, we'll let women stay in the military if they're pregnant, but they didn't have a maternity uniform. So they would just start wearing, you know, regular pregnancy clothes. And so they got complaints that they were not helping with the uniformity or, you know, the the atmosphere. And so they created the military maternity uniform. And what's really neat is what came from that call that um, Elizabeth put on Facebook saying, Hey, does anybody have any maternity pictures they'd be willing to share uh, with Megan McFarlane? Here's her, you know, contact, contact her. I heard from two women who were in the military when they got pregnancy uniforms. And so I was able to talk to them. I wasn't able to include it in this um, research because the book was already going to be out and I was just needing the pictures, but it was really neat to hear from them because one woman had her first pregnancy without the military uniform and her second pregnancy with it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so that was really fun to talk to her. I just like had this really great conversation with her and then her best friend and they, they were very grateful. They said, you know, we, it was amazing to have a uniform for pregnant women and we didn't, I didn't have it with my first. And so to have it with my second was so great. And they sent me pictures, you know, and, and so that was really cool. To, I think to get a little bit of perspective, again, going back to that tension of like, yes, I'm frustrated, but if the alternative was having nothing, you know, kind of being in that tension again of like, it's both good and frustrating. And, um, and what was really interesting is that even one of the women I interviewed or I talked to who had one of those original uniforms, she said that when she she joined the military because she had graduated from college, she had a college degree and she went to like a local department store and was like applied for a manager position. And this was in the seventies. And the man, they, they looked at her and they said, no, you can work the cash register, but we only have men that are managers. And she's like, mm-hmm. well, I, I have my you know degree, a college degree. And they said, yeah, we still, that's still our policy. So she said, I, she remembered thinking if I go to the military, it doesn't matter my gender, it's based on my credentials. And so she went to the military and that's where she could do more managerial work. So, so it's just, it's, again, it's this, I think these things that we tend to overlook or forget about the military, it's both, yes, it's a very hyper-masculine institution. There's a lot of problems around that. And that's that policy culture disconnect that you talked about in the beginning when you introduced me that I, that I talk about in the book. And also these women, you know, Michelle says like, there's no question. If I walk in, you don't go, Oh, is she the nurse or is she the doctor? You know, I'm the doctor. Cause you can see it on my uniform. And so mm. there's, you know, it, I'm at the same level as him in, you know, for pay for rank, we get paid the same. It doesn't matter if I'm a woman. So, so they talk, there's a lot of talk about that too, about how in many ways women, you know, there's not the pay gap, for example, or, or there's not the um, questioning of, or just assuming that the woman is going to be lower in status or rank. Um, at the same time, they talked about how there are, I, I think most of them couldn't even think of a woman who had children who was, who had made it extremely high up in the military. So, so, you know. It's, oh, interesting. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, let me, so let me do this real quick. Cause this, yes. I really want to talk about this, this comment about critical feminism and the fact you don't denounce the military. That's super fascinating, but I'm also, I feel bad now because I shouldn't have introduced the uniform because it's going to make the book seem like it's only concerned with like these superficial tensions, oh. but there's a lot, I mean, that's just one point of entry. So I don't want the listener thinking, Oh, it's like all the women complain. 
because there's some stuff about the difficulty of PTSD. And even though the policies there refusing to, yeah. to actually take advantage because they're afraid of being stigmatized. So do we maybe want to tour through one more example so that I don't, I, I don't want to undersell the book as like a bunch of fashion choices. Do you know what I mean? No, that's, yeah, that is a, <laughs> that's so funny. Um, that's a really good point. I really appreciate that because yeah, it's, I think it would really do a disservice to the service women if everyone thought the only thing they cared about was the way they looked. Cause that's not it at all. Um, with that said, I, I did say like, you know, the way you look is important in the military in terms of being uniform. Um, so there is that interesting thing that's different, I guess, than just fashion, but, right. um, but yes. So I think what to me, um, I'm trying to think, so some of the, some of the interesting things to me were, and I guess this kind of goes back to the tension. Um, maybe that'll be the theme and then they can find the other themes if they read the book, but this mm-hmm. idea that, um, the hyper planning. So, that women need to plan their pregnancies to make sure they, they go with the military's schedule. And so what, what was really interesting about that is, um, and I should say there, there are a lot of these overlaps. So you've got the hyper planning, which is try and make sure you plan your pregnancy for a very specific time in your military career. And then we have the term I borrow from Smithson and Soko macho maternity, which is act like a man, um, to succeed. Like, don't, don't let this pregnancy slow you down. So we have examples of service women who were like, um, still trying to do the, the regular, um, PT training, you know, trying to do the physical, uh, training without using the accommodation. So yes, I'm allowed to go to tennis shoes, but am I going to go to, to tennis shoes, even though my ankles are swollen from retaining water and being pregnant? No, because I don't want to look different. So I, it, again, it's about looking different, but it's also proving that you're equal to your male counterparts. And so I'm going to, I've gained 70 pounds while I'm pregnant. I am still wearing the same PT clothes. I'm not wearing my civilian clothes and I'm still working as hard as everyone else. And so you had a lot of, a lot of that going on with that macho maternity. And then with the, um, like I talked about the identity, you know, then you get to the breastfeeding. And so trying to balance the, like, I need, I want to, and I need to, uh, or I've chosen to breastfeed. I want to pump but my job is making it really hard to do that because pumping takes a lot of time. I have to go find a place to pump, which is the military mandates places to pump, but I have to go find that place to pump. I have to pump, which can take 20 to 40 minutes. I have to clean the things, um, the supplies, and then I have to get back to my job. I have to do that every three hours when the baby's young, you know, four or five hours as the baby gets older, I'm missing meetings. Some of the women had meetings starting without them. And so there's these tensions of like, what do I do? And so some service women had their, their milk dried up because milk production tends to be demand and supply. And so if we yeah. want to really make it you know simple. And so it's like, if, if you're not asking your body to produce it, so if you're not pumping when you need to be pumping, cause you're away from the baby, your body's going to stop producing it. And so some of the women saw that, um, their milk supply just stop way sooner than they wanted. And so, there's all these interesting tensions they're dealing with where like, am I, uh, I'm a service woman and I'm a mother, but I don't feel like I can be both at the same time at work, for example, or, um, or like when it comes to hyper planning, there were a few women who tried really hard to plan their pregnancies. And, um, the two that particularly come to mind is there's one woman who she tried to plan her pregnancy and she, couldn't get pregnant. And she was finally told, you know, you're not, you're not going to be able to get pregnant. And so she's like, okay. So she took a, um, her, you know, she went to her next deployment and she arrives and finds out she's pregnant. And it's like, okay, yeah. like she didn't, she didn't plan it. She wasn't planning on it. She wasn't, she thought she wasn't going to have kids. And now she has this baby in this place where she's not by family. She's not by, you know, friends. She's with her friends in the military, but, but it just shows like, even with the best planning, or even when we think we figured our bodies out, it might not we might not have. Um, another woman had, she and her husband were both in the military. And so they knew that based on their schedules, that they were ready to start plan or trying to have a baby. And she was going to get back from her deployment and be home with her husband for, I think it was like a month or a month and a half. And then he was going to have to go. So they were going to try to, for that tiny window to try and see if she could get pregnant because that would be the best timing. And, um, and so she had to have this really awkward conversation with her superiors, like, Hey, I'm going to try and have 
you know, get pregnant and uh, it's going to work because I've looked at our schedule and this is what our schedule is. And so Hmm. she has this awkward conversation. She does end up getting pregnant. And so it seems like it's going to go according to plan because she's supposed to come on to shore duty right like a few months before her baby's due. So it's perfect timing. They won't have to replace her. She won't have to be moved, whatever. And then the person who's supposed to come and replace her doesn't come. And then the next person does. And so it starts, the timeline starts moving. And so suddenly she's in this place where it's now really inconvenient and it's not working out and the timing isn't good anymore, even though she had really intentionally planned this pregnancy. And so she had to go to her commanding officers again and say, I am so sorry, this isn't going to work. You know, I need to go somewhere else. And so then there was an email that went through that called her, um, I can't remember what the exact words were now, but it was basically saying like an unplanned um, reassignment. And she was crushed because she had tried oh, so hard yeah. to try and get that planning so specific. And, you know, and so it, I think that's just one of these other tensions where as much as, and anybody, I, I know many of us might have friends in the military. It seems like it's very easy to plan. You know, they've got plan it out for this, but the military often you'll talk to somebody and they'll say, I don't know, I could be here a year. I could be here three years. And so I think as much as the military asks them to plan their pregnancies, she did a really good job, but the military schedule isn't always as, um, you know, clear cut as they would like it to be. And so just a lot of those tensions throughout the book, whether it's trying to plan their pregnancy. uh, I have a ton of stories about that, about how these women tried to plan their pregnancies and how it did or didn't go well and why. And then talking about how they embodied macho maternity and tried to not let their pregnancy get in the way, which essentially often ended up meaning they were working so much harder than their male counterparts. And a lot of times they said, I was doing that just because I was a woman in the military. And then when I became a pregnant woman in the military, I worked even harder. So they're like gaining weight, they're tired, their ankles are swelling, and they're trying to work even harder because they just want to be valued and not seen as different. And then dealing with the the breastfeeding policies, et cetera. So it was just, I, I think like, I guess I hadn't thought of it until today, but I think that tension is going through the whole thing. The tension I felt with the pushback from the reviewer about my methods um, actually, I think is reflected in every single chapter of the book, this tension between we both... Yes, great stuff going on here. Some of the most progressive policies in the United States. Let's hope that they influence the rest of, um, you know, the United States organizations. And also some really problematic stuff that's making it really hard to be a pregnant woman and mother in the military. Well, and I think too, like the other thing to keep in mind is this is all pretty much during non, like there's no war. I mean, mean, there are wars and Mm -hmm. I understand that. I just mean, you're not talking about 03 Afghanistan, Iraq. Like, so just imagine now what this book would look like that's what was crazy to me the whole time yeah. reading it. It's like, you're supposed to plan for the military, the military <laughs> at any moment, you know? I mean, yeah. it was just like reading this was just bonkers. The, the amount of, the amount that planning came up as a theme, whereas I'm looking at this, like, who the hell is supposed to plan under these circumstances? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, the planning, it was so fascinating because there were so many women that, that had thought they had planned well and mm-hmm. it just didn't work out or, or things change. Like you yeah, things can change. Like whether a, a war or something happens in, um, you know, somewhere that they need to, they need, now they need your skills. The skills that you have are needed in this place. And so we need you there. And so it was just, it was really, it's just really fascinating because these women were both so committed to the military and their careers and being, you know, I mean, there were, I think two or three women that I interviewed whose husbands were also in the military and they left so that the woman could stay in. And so these, you know, these women that I'm interviewing, and I think it was one of the quotes, I remember if I put it at the, as a, um, at the beginning of a chapter or if it was in a thing, but one of the women said, you know, we're not frou-frou kind of gals, like, yeah, Mm -hmm. we're serious. And so, and so I think that's, what's so interesting is there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of assumptions made about women in the military. Like they get pregnant to get out of the military or they can't, you know, hack it. They don't work as hard. They don't want to stay in like almost giving, um, every excuse for them to like, Oh, they, they just want to get out. And, and so to hear them talk and fight to try and stay in. Um, and then some of them did choose to go to the reserves, you know, they still love the military, but maybe the reserves was a better fit life work-life balance. It was just really interesting and fascinating. And I just hope, I really hope that I gave these women a voice in a way that they feel, you know, really does 
share with others what they're going through and their experiences because um, I was just really honored and excited to talk to so many of them. So yeah, it's it's a lot for for them to balance. Yeah, I mean it's a fascinating book. I mean I hope that I hope that I mean I can't say whether it did, but I mean it seems like it did, but what do I know? Yeah, and I guess just by way of bringing us kind of like towards the end of the interview, I do want to say I I think I think because of the fact that you're trying to balance multiple methodologies and competing interests and and um like all these tensions like you mentioned, you wind up with a book where you're looking at culture policy tensions Mm -hmm. Instead of wholesale changes policy, fixes policy, overhaul this, overhaul that. Mm -hmm. And, and and, you know, assuming that the military is not going to go away tomorrow and assuming that Mm -hmm. a lot of people depend on it right now, this book, I think, offers some really valuable suggestions. And one of them that that I was not expecting was, yeah, the policies are actually there, you know, not perfect, but but better. But no one is taking advantage of them because of the culture. And that yeah. I thought I was like, man, of all the things that could be useful to somebody really thinking about s- policy reform soon, mm-hmm. I don't know if you could ask for better policy suggestions coming out of this research. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was, um, it that it was really exciting to, to kind of, sorry, I have, I have a few thoughts in my head and I'm trying to get them out. Um, I, I appreciate that. As a, I don't know if you've, as a rhetorical scholar, felt this way, but but being asked to kind of come up with suggestions was initially hard for me. It was out of my comfort zone. Cause I was like, Oh no, I, I found, you know, here's, here's some tensions. Now somebody else do something about it. But then, um, I was able, when I took a step back, I was like, I actually do have some suggestions cause it's the women are, the service women are saying them, you know, they've got these ideas, mm. and the biggest thing. And I think the tension, and I don't, I really don't know, I guess how to fix that. Like you said, but the idea that a lot of service women aren't taking complete advantage of the policies because of the culture and the way that they would be viewed. And so, so that's an interesting thing to work through. And there's, and then this isn't, this isn't just the military where this is happening. There's a lot of places. There was a recent study that I quote by Johnson et al in the book um, that talks about women in STEM fields, similar stuff, like just interesting policy and the culture there's, there's just this tension. And so you can have all the best policies you want, but if the culture makes them, undesirable or to follow or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting to, to figure out how to get that to actually become part of the culture. And I would say something that I've been really excited about that was unexpected with this research is, I don't know if, if you remember, um, and it was just a blip cause that's how news is now, but back in March, um, on Fox news, Tucker Carlson made a comment about women's maternity uniforms. Yes, I do remember this. And it I was, do remember that. It was like, my goodness, my book comes out next month and I speak about this. Like, this is so relevant, you know? And so he made some comments that were not very kind about uh, women in the military and women's maternity uniforms. But what was really great is I actually got to speak to uh, the Washington Post. As part of that, I got interviewed by the Washington Post for an article they were doing. And then I had a congresswoman's aide call me up from that and, and call me and say, hey, you know, Megan we see that you've written a book. What kind of policy changes are you interested in and are are not interested in? What kind of policy changes do you think might help? Like, what did you find? What did your research find? And I thought, oh my goodness, this is why we do this, right? To try and actually speak to the policymakers. So who knows if that'll go anywhere, but I was, I mean, I was like, I can, I can be done right now, right? Like I have Mm. done the research and now I've gotten to speak to people that might actually make those suggestions or make some of those changes. But, but I do think the, the fact that there's this policy culture, just or this, the culture, no matter how great the policies are, if it's still looked down upon to take your full maternity leave, to take the accommodations to, you know, wear sneakers, um, instead of boots, et cetera. I think there, you know, I don't know how that's going to take a while to change because, um, it's it's very deep seated. You're you're talking about a hyper masculine organization, an organization that is very much tied to, you know, it's started by men. It's a, you know it's it's very very much about um, being manly, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that it it might be a while, but for us to be aware of it, I think is really important. And the service women just talking to them, they had some really great suggestions and. Um, they have a great support network, which is wonderful. And so to hear them talking to each other and going to each other and kind of getting feedback is fantastic. 
Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the work that the book did. I mean, I hearing now about the labor that went into it, it's even more than I anticipated and I anticipated a lot. So thank you so much for the work. I'm excited to see what comes out of this, you know, um, op-eds for sure. Definitely. Hopefully you're doing yeah. some policy advising. I mean, this is, this is exciting stuff as a rhetorician. I'm a total, like, no, I have no policies. I just talk about language. So it's fun <laughs> to see somebody like moving up in the ranks of practicality. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So with that, I'll just remind listeners that we've been speaking with Dr. Megan McFarlane about her latest book, Militarized Maternity, Experiencing Pregnancy in the U.S. Armed Forces from University of California Press. And now I'll just make my usual plug for um, picking up a copy of the book, buying a copy for a friend. I mean, if you have someone in the service um, who's a woman or, you know, even even not because, you know, we we all love women and these policy issues are not isolated to just women. This would be maybe a great thing to, to grab for them. But if you're not inclined, the other really cool thing to do is grab a copy for your local library, because you can imagine, um, especially with libraries being so under-resourced, how cool it would be to walk into a library like this um, as an under-resourced person and see a book like this on the shelves, maybe speaking to your experience or giving you some new things to think about. And that's uh, a privilege that we can pay forward for Megan's work and all of the work that the university presses in, because as I love to remind people, we didn't get in this for the money. We got in it for the ideas. And so the more the ideas get out, the better. And of course, never a problem to request that your university library or local library grab a copy for themselves. We will link to the uh, University of California website for the book. And they have a PDF right there that you can download to request that your library grab a copy. But, uh, you know, it's a very affordable book. So donating a copy is something nice to do with budgets being what they are. So with that little plug, uh, Megan, do you want to leave us with any final thoughts or let us know what you're up to? Again, I, I can't thank you enough for the book. So yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I I have had a lot of fun talking about this and I appreciate your interest. And yeah, I, I right now, I guess I'm kind of picking up the book. I guess if we're talking about what I'm reading right now, um, Anne Marie Slaughter's Unfinished Business. So she's talk it talks about work life, men and women, and how how we can balance everything and that uh, um, cultural change that I think is needed. So I'm started reading her book at the beginning of the pandemic, and I had to put it down because stuff just kind of got out of control and overwhelming. But I'm picking it back up, and I think it really speaks to a lot of the stuff that I'm researched researching and interested in in terms of work life balance with men and women in the workplace. And so, so that's what I'm reading. Um, but I know there's a lot of other great books out there as well that hopefully I can pick up again now that it's summer and it's reading season, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I kind of live in permanent reading season, but that's because I'm bougie <laughs> and privileged, <laughs> but yes, let me, let me reach out and see if, um, see if that's a book that they might want to come on and interview about. All right. Awesome. Well, it's been an awesome chat. I wish we could talk more, but as is always the case, you know, tip of the iceberg kind of thing. I can't recommend the book enough. And to everyone out there, speaking of summer, I hope you're enjoying the weather. And uh, if you haven't yet, consider maybe heading out and getting vaccinated so that you can enjoy it even more. And thank you so much, Megan. Thank you, everyone listening and have a safe and happy day. Thank you. You too, Lee.